the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Let me read the first 11 verses. We're going to review them. I hurried last Lord's Day. This church cannot afford to have any of you confused or in doubt about this passage of Scripture, lest you raise your hand and undo the truth of our religion by your ignorance of this passage. This is not Jesus having compassion for a woman caught in adultery. There is no compassion here. It's not about compassion. There's no evidence that she was saved. There's no evidence that she was repentant. It's not about that. He wasn't delivering a woman. He delivered himself. He condemned others, the scribes and the Pharisees. You must understand the words, he that is without sin, in the right sense. You must understand the words, neither do I condemn thee, in the right sense. Or you will use them out of their place, and you'll abuse Scripture, and you'll corrupt righteousness. Thus, the repetition, and I warned you last Lord's Day because I knew I was running out of time and was going faster than I wanted to. I read to you the first 11 verses of John 8. For my pleasure and yours, if you love the King James Bible, let's start with John 7:53, so that we get all 12 verses that they say don't belong in the Bible. Yes. And every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Amen and amen. These are the words of the living God. We believe them fully. They're in our King James Bible, and that's enough evidence for us. Amen. However, there's a whole lot more evidence for them, as I shared briefly with you last Lord's Day. Now, before I get started on this passage of Scripture because I do not want to review the uh, transmission of the Bible text so that we have these 12 verses in our Bible. 
I don't want to review that material, but I do want to give God the glory for how he has led us to what we believe about the Bible. I was going to bring one of my large decorative swords that are truly two-edged swords being sharp on both sides of the blade to remind everyone here, but I figured that you adults don't need a, a picture. And that is we have a two-edged double approach toward defending the King James Bible. We prove the King James Bible by four aspects of internal evidence of the Bible itself. And those are the four F's. Faith in God's promises to preserve his words, the fruit that follows his words, the facts of the King James Bible's internal integrity against the facts of the other Bible's proven folly, right. and the fools that want to sit in judgment on, by their learning on the King James Bible, God has said he would not let them have wisdom. Right. So we know they don't. Mm -hmm. By those four F's, that is one edge of the sword of the Spirit, being the Word of God. The other edge is presently the black book that we give away entitled, Which Version is the Bible? Written by Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones. That is the manuscript evidence there is for the Textus Receptus, for the, for the majority text, the traditional text, the Byzantine text, the Antiochian text of the Bible. And so it's those two things that we have. So when you want to reaffirm your own understanding of the Bible, or you want to share it with others, you have those two approaches, and they're very different from each other. Mm -hmm. I want to bless God 35 years ago to 40 years ago. I got my hands on this little pamphlet written by a layman in the state of Michigan. Perfected or perverted. A shocking expose of the modern versions of the Bible. I had read volumes by Peter Ruckman. I had read the materials from the Witch Bible Society of David Otis Fuller in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I had read other materials. This little booklet did the best, and I thank God for it. This little booklet emphasized faith. This little booklet emphasized fruits. Right. He may not have used the four F's, but he did emphasize faith in God's promises, the fruits that follow God's word, and the facts of the internal integrity. And without using the fourth F of fools, he railed on those that wanted to sit in judgment of God's words. And so the Lord helped me 35 to 40 years ago, before I was even ordained, with this little booklet, and I thank the Lord for it. Amen. These providential choices that God makes in our lives... For this man to share the truth with me, I thank God for that. If God had denied me this little pamphlet, I would not have seen the concise, spiritual, scriptural defense of the Bible apart from manuscript evidence. Now this little booklet combines both. It combines both. But when I read it, I didn't care about the manuscript evidence. I can read the black book, Which Version is the Bible, by Dr. Jones, with as much pleasure as anyone else. But this, I stake the King James Bible on what the Bible says about itself. Faith, fruit, facts, and fools. That's the stronger evidence to me. Because I know that with enough questions and enough learning, 
you can question the manuscript evidence. It's like I'm not going to debate creation with anyone from the Grand Canyon. I'm not going to debate the flood from the Grand Canyon. I'm not going to debate the flood from the pictures that the Soviet Air Force pilots have taken of that wooden mass frozen in ice at the top of Mount Ararat in Turkey. I don't care about any of that. Genesis chapters 6 through 9 tell me that there was a worldwide flood. Peter confirms it in 2 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, it's also mentioned. Hebrews chapter 11, it's mentioned about Noah's faith. And so from that evidence, I believe in the flood. And I'm just different that way because I don't care about any external evidence that that, uh, these two little sacks of mucous membrane hanging in my skull might land upon. What, what, what I care about is what is in my heart that God has put there that finds in his word and the matching power greatly exceeds any presentation I have ever heard about amazing creatures that defy evolution. Right. I rejoice in those things as much as anyone here. I will get excited about some of the minute things that God has made in his creation right along with you. But this is where I rest my destiny in this world Amen. and my destiny in the next world. And there's no little creatures to help you get there. Except right here. Jesus is the light of the world. Not science. They don't have science today. But true science, not science falsely so called, is still not the light of the word of God. This right here. This is not the color. This is what I had to search the internet for and find used and buy it used. It is out of print. The man's probably dead. I would love to send him a gift. I appreciate this man so much, but more than that, I appreciate God. And I know I'm taking several valuable minutes right now, but I want you to appreciate how God has arranged the dots in your life for you to hear the truth, for you to see the light, and for the light to be brought to you. We heard this morning that the Ethiopian eunuch did not understand Isaiah 53. How can I understand this Unless some man guide me, I thank the Lord. I'm not a Ruckmanite. I'm not a member of the Witch Bible Society, though I appreciate the efforts that David Fuller made as the pastor of Wealthy Street Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for about 45 years. Mr. Norman Ward, if you've entered upon your eternal reward, Enter thou into the joy of that Lord there for what you did for me. So so short, so simple. All glory to God. Amen. John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11, those 12 verses called the pericope adultery are in the word of God for a reason. There's lots of external evidence, there's internal evidence, and we believe them because... They're in the Bible that God has put his divine stamp of approval upon. If it's in the King James Bible, we believe it for reasons that we've already established at other times as to why we believe the King James Bible. It's, we have two aspects of proof for our Bibles, the four F's and the manuscript evidence behind it. And there are men on both sides of that sword or both sides of that coin that have given their lives and labor to prove it. Okay, John chapter 8. We read in verse 2 that early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him 
and he sat down and taught them. I hope that we want to come and hear the Lord Jesus Christ just like Mary did. Instead of Martha, who was cumbered about with much care, Mary wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said she had chosen the better part of the activities of that day, and so had these people. Verse 3, the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes were those legals, those men engaged in the legal work of transcribing the law of Moses. They were scribes in the law of God. They, they copied the Bible. They preserved the Bible. It was their job as scribes to know the Bible, copy the Bible, destroy damaged Bibles, and interpret the Bible. And they taught the people. And we saw some of the verses. The verses are found throughout the Bible. When Herod wanted to know where Jesus, the king of the Jews, was to be born, he asked the scribes, because the scribes were the ones that were supposed to know the Bible. So when Jesus says certain things in the verses that follow here, they knew. He knew they knew. And so you got to remember that. These sentences may be obscure to you, but they're not obscure to the Jews that were standing there receiving them upon their ears. They fully knew that they were going against what the law of Moses said about a capital trial, a trial for the life of a person. There were rules that had to be followed, and they weren't being followed. So when Jesus said, he that is without sin, here's the first time you're going to hear it today. You heard it about seven to ten times last week, and you're going to hear it again today. He wasn't talking about the fact, had they that morning surfed the internet looking at porn? He wasn't asking them if they had ever sinned by lying to their parents when they were children. He was asking them, did they have any sin? Could, they, could any of them step forward and be without sin in this capital trial for the woman's life and pick up the first stone because a witness had to pick up the first stone? They were the ones that caught her in the very act. Were any of them without sin in the legal matter of killing a woman in a capital trial? And they knew all the terms, and they weren't. They couldn't, and so they left. They didn't leave because they had looked at a Playboy magazine the previous month. I cannot believe how people read the Bible. I cannot believe the corruption that simple people make when they read these simple verses. But I am trying to set you straight, and I want to set you straight again for the second Sunday, so that we never have rise up in this church any of you or your children to use this passage against the proper execution of judgment in this church, in your home, or in our nation, or anywhere else. The words, he that is without sin, let him first cast a stone at her, has nothing to do with ordinary judgment. This is a particular legal exchange between Jesus and the scribes of Moses' law. There are legal issues at stake, and that is all that is at stake. John chapter 8 and verse 3. I do not like this any more than you like it. But I am totally committed and I am obsessed with a true understanding of God's word. And I don't care how long I have to take repeating myself or how loud I may have to get at various points. I want you convinced and I want you to see it and I want you to understand it. And I want you to flush any false concepts you've had about this story. This is not Jesus shedding crocodile tears and fearing, feeling sorry for a woman that's about to be stoned. This is Jesus relieving himself from the false accusations of the scribes and Pharisees and condemning them instead. And showing his brilliance as an interpreter of God's law. And his brilliance at how to handle an argument from enemies and foes. 
his brilliance at taking a circuitous route instead of answering any of the questions. Remember, whenever you hear a debate or see a debate or somebody's debating something with you and you start asking detailed questions, you are not very bright. Jesus didn't ask a single question. Jesus didn't want to know a single detail. He's wiser than that. He looked at the big picture. The big picture was they didn't have a case. So why would you enter into the details? Let me give you an extreme example of entering into the details. You sit someone down and you confront them about a sin in their life that you have become aware of. You tell them what a sin, and do you know what they ask back? Who told you? When I hear those words, who told you? How did you find out? I know that I have a person working with the devil sitting in front of me. Why in the world would you ever care who told me or how I found out when there is a matter of sin in your life? Would you please explain that to me? Help me. That's just an example. It's not a perfect apple-to-apple -apple example of this passage here. It's an example of fretting and worrying about things that have no dealing at all with the issue. The issue is sin, and this particular sin is legal sin because they did not have a case against this woman. It didn't matter that they had caught her in the act. They were breaking a number of provisions of Moses' law about her. So, there, I've got some of that off my chest. And it's off my chest because I love God's word. I love the truth of God's word. And if you take this the wrong way, you will neuter fathers. You will neuter husbands. You will neuter magistrates. You will neuter pastors. You will neuter masters. And I am not going to let you do that. If we have to start worrying about a man in a position of authority, whether he's a husband or a father, a pastor, a master, or a magistrate, that a year ago he looked at porn on the internet and therefore he can't judge, you are really messed up. There's never been a perfect judge in the whole world except the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect judge, has transmitted judgment and authority to those five spheres that I've listed twice now, and they're all imperfect, but that doesn't alter their judgment at all. It alters how they're going to relate to God here in this life and when they stand at the great judgment seat, but it doesn't alter their judgment. They still have a right. They still have a responsibility. They still have a burden to judge. And their judgment is just as binding. The character of the man judging has nothing to do with the binding nature of his judgment. The judgment of a man in authority and the binding nature of that judgment is based on God's authority of giving him an office. And so wives, do not despise your husbands because they're not perfect. It is irrelevant. Just like your children, you don't want to despise you because you are twice as imperfect as your husband is. Do you understand this? These verses do not alter judging. Neither do I condemn thee. Condemner in what sense? Did Jesus condemn adultery? Of course he did. Did Jesus condemn the fact that the woman showed no remorse, no repentance, no nothing? Of course. What did he mean? Neither do I condemn thee. I have no case. There's no legal basis to condemn you. There's no witnesses here. He did dealt with that in the previous verse. I do not have a position of authority in the nation of Israel to make a legal or civil judgment towards you. So you know where we're headed. 
And we've already been there once. Maybe we'll get there a time or two. Again, before we quit, this doesn't need to take long. I want you to understand this passage. Do you know that this passage was taken out of the Bible, according to Augustine and others who witnessed scribes removing it because they didn't understand it? I gave you a couple reasons last week as to why these 12 verses were taken out of the Bible, out of certain manuscripts, so that it's only in 85% of the available Greek manuscripts. One of the reasons is because men didn't understand it, and the chauvinistic men that they were in that day did not want to give women any grounds for committing adultery. Two, this particular passage, these 12 verses, were not read on the day of Pentecost when the verses around them were read, and so they were marked. I, t- I told you, I don't want to repeat myself about that stuff, because Dean Burgeon and others have proven that the ancient church formalized religion back in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries on the day of Pentecost wanted to read John chapter 7 because verse 37 is a prophecy of what's going to happen in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But in, in churches, you didn't read one verse. You read a section. And so the section they read was from John seven thirty-seven to John eight twelve, And because they wanted it to end with on a high note. And the high note is, I am the light of the world. But they didn't want the adultery situation pulled into it, so they put it in brackets. And that was, a, that was confusing to scribes that hadn't got beyond MTV, remember? Okay. And so that's what we learned. But let's look at these verses quickly and remind ourselves of them. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, and I've reminded you of their particular character. The scribes were employed in the legal work of the law of Moses. The Pharisees were the most conservative of the Jewish sects. It is an equal or worse sin against truth to be conservative rather than liberal. To be more conservative than God is or to be more liberal than God is, they're both wrong. And one isn't better than the other. In fact, who gave Jesus by far the most trouble? The conservative Pharisees, the fundamentalists. Because liberals don't really care what you believe. And that's nice about liberals. It is. They don't really care. They don't take a stand on anything. We don't even know if Jesus ever lived. And they're Christians. There's just good stories in the Bible. You know, you think a person like that's ever going to be in war with you? No. They're going to say, let's agree to disagree. He sees things his way, I see things my way. Let's sit down and eat. Pharisees want to stone you to death because they have their new King James Bible and you just picked on it. Lord, help us. Verse 4, Master, I want to remind you that flattering titles are terrible. Flattering titles didn't move the Lord Jesus Christ, but these men used flattering titles about him. They did not consider him their master, their rabbi, or their teacher because they hated him. Before this chapter can end, they're going to call him a Samaritan with a devil in verse 48. And yet... No, they did not consider him their master. They did not respect him. And we want to remember that and not put, not use flattering titles ourselves or put any emphasis on them or allow others to use them toward us and have it affect us. Wise men learn very quickly to discern whether a man wants to learn or not. 
And Jesus could tell very quickly, even naturally, that they didn't have a case and that they were trying to trap him, but he was the Son of God, and so he knew spiritually that they were there to trap him. As verse 6 tells us, they were there tempting him. Verse 5, these men say, Now Moses and the law commanded us, as if they cared about Moses. They cared about wearing Moses in public on their foreheads and on their arms. They cared about reading Moses on the Sabbath day. They cared that they had Moses and no other nation in the, in the world had been given the word of God. They cared about matters of pride like that, but they did not care about the moral character of Moses' law or they would have loved the Messiah that was standing there in front of them because that law told them about him and he had already appealed to that law and anyone that read the law with any understanding knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of it. Because you can read that all the way from the beginning of his birth. They knew where he was to be born. They knew that some spectacular event had happened in Bethlehem. They knew it so well that Herod had killed the, ba- the, ch- the young children there. There were large events that had taken place. Jesus, at the age of 12, could handle any of the doctors of the law when he sat in the temple for three days and his parents had lost him. Who wouldn't have remembered that? You're a 65-year-old doctor of the law about to retire and you meet a 12-year-old that takes you apart. You think you're going to forget that? Behind you is a 45-year-old doctor of the law wanting to learn from you, the 65-year-old doctor of the law, and behind him is a 25-year-old doctor of the law wanting to learn from the 45-year-old doctor of the law, and they watch a 12-year-old boy take them apart. Do you think they didn't know that? There was no evidence? There was evidence. But they didn't want to learn. They hated him. This is the most terrible thing about the light of the world. The darkness that is in man, the natural mind, the natural man, the carnal mind is, I need an E word from Romans chapter 8. The carnal mind is enmity, enmity, enmity against God. It's not just ignorance of God. It's not just blindness to God. You might think that with just the word darkness. But when you study the word darkness in the Bible, it includes wickedness. The whole world lieth in darkness. The whole world lieth in wickedness. It is wicked enmity against God and against his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Enmity. Thank you, Lord, for defeating your enemies and causing us to kneel and pay homage to your son by your powerful grace. No less powerful than it was to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He just caused us to fall down and say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? in a different time, in a different place, in a different way. And I thank him for that, and I hope you're thanking him for that with me. Now Moses and the law commanded us. Verse 6 tells us they didn't care about Moses' law. They cared about getting grounds to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. They appealed to the highest authority they had in Israel, and that was the law of Moses. That such should be stoned. I went and showed you those verses last Lord's Day that an adulteress should be stoned, but the adulterer that was committing adultery with her should be stoned as well. The Bible says both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death, and they obviously had the adulterer in their hands as well because they caught her in the very act. So they had the man there as well, but they didn't bring him. And whether or not stoning was for a woman that was married and not just a woman that was betrothed, remember this little point that I made last Lord's Day, it doesn't really matter, that isn't the issue. The issue that Jesus goes after, he that is without legal sin in the matter. 
step forward. What sayest thou? They didn't want Jesus' judgment. They wanted to trap him. They wanted Jesus to get into a debate with them. They wanted Jesus to take responsibility for this stoning. They wanted Jesus to do something that they could accuse him to some authority and have grounds to kill him. If Jesus ruled for stoning, they could report him to the Romans because the Jews did not have authority to stone themselves. Right there in John, if you turn back to chapter 18 and verse 31, Then said Pilate unto them, that is the Jews, Take ye him, referring to Jesus, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. So there you have the facts of the case that the Jews could not exercise capital punishment or enforce capital punishment because the Jews had taken that authority. The Jews had a pretty good legal system. There were attempts made on Paul's life, and Paul's life was spared because he was a Roman citizen. They had a process, a due process of order for the legality of capital punishment. That such should be stoned. We just look at this passage and realize that, yes, capital punishment was required, and Jesus cuts through all the little minuscule details that don't matter and comes after the real issue of the legality of the case. But what sayest thou? If Jesus ruled for stoning, they could report him to the Romans. If Jesus ruled for stoning, they could charge him with hypocrisy because he had said that the harlots go into the kingdom of God before the scribes and the Pharisees. He had showed compassion to harlots in the past, but they were repentant harlots. If Jesus had acquitted her, they could have accused him contrary to Moses. If Jesus had acquitted her, they could have charged him with changing the law of God when he came not to undo the law, but to fulfill the law. If he had acquitted her, they could have charged him with gross public lasciviousness in allowing such wickedness to go on in Israel. If Jesus had turned her over to Pilate for the Romans to kill her, they could have accused him of being a traitor to Israel. If all else failed, Jesus deciding a case judicially, not theoretically, was a crime because he didn't have any authority. They thought they had the perfect dilemma. And when you think through all these angles, it looks pretty foreboding for the Lord of glory, but he's the Lord of glory. They were no different here than with Caesar's tribute money. They were no different here than with the divorce laws of Israel. As they brought the law to bear in uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Is it lawful? Is it lawful? They're appealing to Moses' law, and Jesus takes them apart in every case because he knew the law better than they did, and after all, they weren't there trying to find out a real bottom line to the law. They were there trying to trap him and snare him in his words to destroy him. It is important to understand this wicked intention and the Lord's knowledge of it so that you appreciate and understand his answers to the Jews. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill it. He is not going to say anything against the law. He is not going to neuter judges. He's not going to reduce the authority of judges. He is going to uphold the authority of judges, even though they're imperfect, sinful men. But he is going to uphold the law of Moses. And so he does that by his simple words, he that is without sin. He that is without legal sin in the way that Moses prescribed for capital crimes and trials, let him first cast a stone because that's the one that's supposed to cast the stone. I've got to have a witness. Moses said, you've got to be a witness 
of the crime, and you've got to be an honest witness, and you can't be in conspiracy with anyone else, we're going to look at the verses, to throw the first stone. He basically said, go ahead and do it. Just do it right. Where's the righteous executioner to get this show on the road? Because they didn't have a righteous executioner. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Let me chase this little rabbit. Matthew chapter 5 gives people a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, is Jesus contradicting Moses? Not a chance, not even close. Is Jesus contradicting God and changing something for the New Testament? Not a chance, not even close. He did not say, it is written. He said, ye have heard by them of old time. You have heard. You have heard the oral tradition of the Jewish scribes and rabbis on your ears. You have heard their corruption of God's law. You have heard them take thou shalt not kill in its breadth and shrink it down to the overt actual act of taking the physical life of a person. But I say unto you that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're guilty of the sixth commandment. If you call your brother a fool or raka without a justifiable cause, you're guilty of the sixth commandment. And I say unto you that you've heard that it hath been said thou shalt not commit adultery, and that's been shrunk down to just the overt, actual, physical, inter- act of intercourse. I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her is in violation of the seventh commandment, and whosoever goes to the divorce courts and gets himself or gets herself another spouse that she doesn't have a right to, she's guilty of the seventh commandment. Oh, yes. That is what Jesus taught. He was not undoing the law. He was fulfilling the law and reestablishing the law, confirming the law, explaining the law, and applying the law. Keep that in mind. Verse 6. This they said, tempting him. We thank God for the clear statement by the Spirit and of John, our writer, of their evil plan. There was no honest or sincere inquiry. They wanted something to accuse him, and I've given you several options for that. What did he write in the ground? We don't know. We don't care. It's irrelevant. It wasn't what he wrote in the ground. You know, all my, most of my life, not all my life, but most of my life, I had heard early on, I'm not blaming anyone that might be present for this, where is the man? I just thought that was pretty short and to the point. And so where is the man got them all convicted? Or what did you watch on television last night? Now I'm making this up. Okay, let's just, let's just run down the line. What could be on the ground? When did you last look at porn? And so once we, down, once we go down this road, there's no stopping. There's no guidance for us at all. We just run on into the abyss of heresy and all the speculations of the human mind, and we miss the point. We missed the point. We don't know what he wrote. doesn't matter what he wrote. They weren't convicted by what he wrote. And thanks be to our King James Bible and these 12 verses, we are told they were convicted by what they heard. Because what they heard was, we need a righteous witness to become the righteous executioner by throwing the first stone in fulfillment of Moses' law 
And so who is legally righteous here to do it? That is what convicted them. Because they knew they had a whole lot of legal problems about this particular trial. We believe the words that are in italics at the last part of verse 6, as though he had not heard them. We believe those words because they're in our King James Bible and God has put his divine stamp of approval in the King James Bible. And I reminded you of two examples that you want to remember of italicized words where arguments are made from italicized words. Jesus made an argument in Matthew chapter 22 from a single italicized word in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. Italicized words are them looking lazy and leaning over a little bit to the side. They're leaning at an angle because the King James translators were honest to tell you when they interpolated words. It is impossible to translate word for word from one language to another. You have to sometimes interpolate verb tenses, verb moods, and so forth by what's around a word. And so whenever our translators did it, they put it in italics to let you know we've interpolated this word or we have found this word in other manuscripts that are not part of the Textus Receptus. They were honest. Try to find that today when they change words. Like in Mark 1, 2, do you think the whole verse is in italics? Do you think Isaiah is in italics? We've put Isaiah in italics because we don't have a clue of what we're talking about as we translate Mark 1, 2. That's what they should have in their footnotes, but they don't. Quizzers, I am waiting for a quizzer to step forward, not right now, and tell us that you're going to go give something really precious to George Wood when you have your next quiz. It doesn't have to be obnoxious at all. It just should be neat to show him something that I want him to know for him to be able to use because he loves the King James Version like we do. Amen. Well, they continue asking him. He's stooped over. He's writing on the ground. They keep asking him. He hasn't given them any acknowledgement at all. He's acting like he hasn't even heard them, according to our Bibles. Can you sense their feelings of success? They think that they're, he can't answer them. He's trying to buy time. He's trying to figure out an answer. He's trying to get the courage up to tell his apostles they need to step aside for a conference to come up with some answer. Hold, think about it. No, he wasn't doing that at all. He was showing them that their case didn't apply, they didn't have a case, and that he wasn't in a position to judge anyway. He that is without sin among you is what we have in verse 7, in the middle of it. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Rejoice. Rejoice. At Jesus' incredible wisdom to avoid taking any position on the matter except to put it back in their hands. The dilemma they had on him, he threw them back on the horns of that dilemma. He avoided the law, trying to talk about it, explain it, apply it. Morality, the woman, circumstances, a conspiracy. He didn't go into any of that. Though as the Son of God, he knew all of that. He simply threw it back on them or threw them back on the horns of that dilemma. They sat in Moses' seat, so they had the authority to judge her. I sent this verse to you this week. Do you understand Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3? The scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatsoever they bid you do, do it. But do not follow their hypocritical lives. That is what Jesus taught. They had the authority. 
the ones with the authority came to Jesus and wanted to put him on the horns of a dilemma. He threw it back into their hands. They had to make the decision. Do we go against Rome? What is he going to say next? What if he tells everybody assembled here next the, the three, four, five things that we're doing contrary to the law of Moses? That is what they were convicted about. That is what they were convicted about. Can I show that they were convicted like that at other times? How about Matthew 22, the last two verses? Does it tell us, after Jesus handled the questions about tribute money, the questions about the woman that was married to seven brothers, the question about Jesus, whose son is he, what happened? They durst ask him no more questions. They were convicted that they could not handle themselves in front of him, and so they stopped asking him questions. In this particular case, which is very comparable, they knew they didn't have a case and that he had them, and they were convicted in their consciences and left. It's not because of the things you've been taught before or the things you've thought. And I've given some examples of them already this morning. It's the legal issue at stake. And I want you embracing that and seeing the power of it. For them, they were the scribes. It didn't matter if they were guilty of sin. They could still stone her. It didn't matter if they had committed adultery the previous day. They could still stone her. If you take the words, he that is without sin, and apply it to general sin in a man's life, what dad can ever discipline his children? Every father that has a conscience, we're dealing with a conscience, aren't we? Because that's what was affected. Every father that has a conscience, when he disciplines his children, he knows he's not perfect. A right. good father right. is going to have going through his mind the things that he has done wrong himself toward God, toward his boss, toward his wife, even toward the children. In his soul, in his thoughts, in his words, sins of omission, sins of commission, some of them are going to come up. But guess what? Does he still go ahead? Or does he say, he that is without sin, let him spank the children, therefore I can't. No. When we stand in court and a judge makes a ruling and brings his gavel down, we don't care what he did that morning. We don't care what he did the previous day. Yes, idealistically, we would like them all to be the Son of God. But none of them ever have been. None of them ever will be. Even though Solomon had married several bad women, when, that, when those two prostitutes came before him with one baby, I loved his judgment. It didn't matter that he had already married outside the Lord multiple times. He was still wise. And he was still the one in authority. And it's true of every father. It's true of every husband. I hope that I am making sense without preaching lasciviousness. Once you start down the wrong trail... Where are you going to stop? You are going to neuter every position of authority God's ever made. You are going to put questions and doubts in every judge's mind, every father's mind, every husband's mind. And Jesus didn't do that at all. He only put doubts in the scribe's mind because they were the one that sat in Moses' seat. And they were, since they had witnessed her in the very act, they were the ones that should pick up the stone and do the job. He just asked them, do we have a righteous witness to be the executioner here? Who wants to get this show started? It's beautiful. And it's so different from how it's used commonly. 
He limited it to them. He that is among you, that is the scribes and Pharisee accusers, not the audience that was there to hear him. He that is without sin is not general sinfulness, general sins or ordinary sins. It's not total depravity. It's not a natural man. It's not an old man. It's none of that. It's legal issues. He that is without sin is not sexual sins, actual adultery, mental adultery, or anything like that. It's legal issues. If you loosen this contextual chain, you will start down a path without truth and you'll ruin authority. And I, I showed you once, I want to mention it again. Did Jesus ever get their consciences to where they feared him and did not want to engage any further? Yes, I gave you Matthew 22, verse 46. They durst ask him no more questions. They durst not push this issue any further because they were going to be in serious trouble. They knew what he could say next. He could point out from their law that they were wrong, 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 wrong. Where is the man he could have pointed out next? They had opened their mouths and condemned themselves by saying, we caught her in the very act. Oh, yes. And then all the verses that he could have raised and quoted to them from Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 19, that there could never be a conspiracy among witnesses. That if there was ever a conspiracy or if there was ever an unrighteous witness or if a witness ever followed a crowd to rest judgment, then they were to be charged with the very punishment that they themselves were trying to have executed on their victim. Right. Oh, yeah. And guess what? They could have quoted those verses as well because they were the scribes. He that is without sin, these provisions of Moses' law for a capital trial, he that is without sin, let's get it started. He honors Moses' law. He condemns them. He honors himself. He shows brilliant wisdom. As a courtroom debater, one sentence, one sentence, and they're walking out. They knew that he had them. Thank you, Lord. Let him first cast a stone at her. That's part of the law. It's the witnesses that had to pick up the stone. Jesus couldn't pick up the stone. He wasn't a witness. No one in the crowd could pick up a stone. They weren't a witness. It had to be one of them. It had to be one of them. And listen, it's really easy to wag the tongue when you're just talking about killing another person. But when you've got to pick up the stone and actually stone them, it's a different subject. Which one of you wants to get this thing started? I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what kind of courtroom he's in right now? This is last Sunday. I grieved all week last week. I just want to share this with you for the glory of God. I grieved all week of how I was going to tie John chapter 8 to the Lord's Supper. He gave that to me in the pulpit last Sunday. He said, what do you think? Of course I don't hear an audible voice. I don't want to sound like Benny Hinn in a moment of wisdom or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Benny Hinn has never had any wisdom or knowledge ever in his entire life. Do you know where the courtroom Jesus is in right now? Almighty God sits as judge. He sits at his right hand, my intercessor. He ever liveth to make intercession for me. Amen. And when I stand there before God and the books are opened and it's pointed out that I am one lousy scoundrel, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be there and he's going to intercede for me. And if he, if he could deliver this woman on the grounds of Moses, inferior, obscure, beggarly, carnal, Commandments of, an earth, of earthly ordinances, guess what he's going to be able to do for me with his shed blood as the atoning factor in my redemption. What came out of my mouth last Lord's Day was by the blessing of God. 
and I thank him. So I rejoice in his legalist skills here in this court situation in the treasury of the temple. But I rejoice even more about what he's going to do for me and what he's going to do for you. Let him first cast a stone at her. Verse 8, again he stoops down. Oh, this is so wise. His pause, far from the usual intense back and forth, gave them time to reflect. You understand how most debates take place, right? And so you're, you're flinging things back. You're flinging out defensive things. You're flinging out attacks. He just went back to stooping. He wasn't looking them in the eye. He wasn't waiting for a verbal response. They just had to think, oh, he could destroy us right now. He is right. He doesn't have the authority to do this. You say, how could they get themselves caught in such a situation? Because God has promised to take the wise of this world and turn them into fools. Amen. That is how. That is how. He does it over and over and over again. How in the world is there Mark 1-2 in any Bible? And it says in their Bibles, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, when they know it was written in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. How in the world can, can Bible after Bible after Bible after Bible, all of them, say that it's written in Isaiah when it's written in Malachi and they put a footnote saying this is in Malachi. <laughs> How can they do that? Right. Because God promised to do it. It's another evidence of facts and fools. Wouldn't you be ashamed? Zach's mother wrote me this week and said, How can they sleep with themselves at night? <laughs> it's a good question. Verse 9 before I go to verse 9, he, verse 8 has him stooped down, writing on the ground again. Instead of keeping the fury of the battle going by exchanging, he said one sentence, putting them on the horns of the dilemma, and then he goes back down, not looking them in the eye, not expecting anything said, letting them think about it, and that they could slip away without him seeing them. Because he's down at the ground and they all slipped out from the oldest to the youngest and I gave you reasons as to why it would go in that order and that's the order that it should go and they which heard it verse 9 being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one beginning at the eldest even unto the last and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst now how alone is Jesus when she when he has a woman standing there in front of her when he has a woman standing in front of him. That's how we, why we always read the context. He was alone as far as those accusers of scribes and Pharisees. They were convicted by their own conscience. Conscience is a powerful, wonderful thing. We want to teach it, use it, listen to it, and follow it when it agrees with the word of God. Can a conscience be an ignorance? Of course. Can we train a conscience? Yes. Can you stifle a conscience? Can you cauterize, sear a conscience? Yes, you can. Help us not to do that, Lord. When Jesus had lifted up himself in verse 10 and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. I have no accusers. No one's accusing me of adultery. You've got to understand, we are standing in Israel, in the temple. Moses has been brought to bear by the scribes and the Pharisees, the issue is legal proceedings. If there's no witnesses, there's no crime. There's no witnesses. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus couldn't condemn her. 
he didn't have the right to condemn her in the legal sense of what had just taken place there. Let me remind you of these two verses in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. One of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Don't forget that. He wasn't a judge at that time in that way. He didn't sit in Moses' seat. He will be the judge. And he will condemn. And he will cast every doer of iniquity into the lake of fire that's not in him by God's electing grace. Go and sin no more. Jesus admits that what she had done was sin. Jesus doesn't condemn her legally. He could have condemned her in other ways. But the issue at stake in the context right there was legal proceedings. And he couldn't and didn't condemn her. Let's summarize this whole thing this way. Textual summary. There is sufficient evidence, external and internal, for the 12 verses in our Bibles. This is what you've learned the last two Sundays from this passage. There is both scriptural, our four Fs, and manuscript evidence for the verses. Scribes removing the verses showed their ignorance like they do in other places. Dean Burgeon's explanation for textual confusion due to lectionaries is very helpful. Obsessive adoration and infatuation with Vaticanus and Sinaiticus blind critics. Comparable deletion of Mark 16 is further evidence of textual superstition. That's the textual summary. Interpretational summary. The entire event was staged attempt to trap Jesus in an impossible dilemma. There is more weight and value in his wisdom than compassion on the woman. There is more appeal to Moses' requirements for witnesses than sexual purity. There is enough information to avoid speculating what Jesus may have written because they were convicted by what he spoke. Jesus did not change the holy law of God at all about adultery, but confirmed it. Jesus did not alter validity of imperfect authority, but rather of evil conspirators. The New Testament God is no different than the old when judging sexual sin. He that is without sin, those words, they're not general or sexual sins, but legal sins as witnesses. Neither do I condemn thee is not compassion, but his lack of formal office to proceed in a Moses-approved trial for her life. Neither do I condemn thee is not a change in anything, but a lack of witnesses. Jesus did not come to destroy the law or prophets, but to fulfill them. That's the interpretational summary, the practical summary. There is a proper way for all justice to be applied, so make sure you do it right. All men are sinners, but it does not change God's officers applying his justice. There is no obligation to answer fools. In fact, to do so is sin yourself and a lack of wisdom. We must be aware and fearful to be godly when we accuse others. That's what the Bible means when it says, Judge not that ye be not judged. And then it goes on to describe hypocritical or overly harsh judgment. We want to learn these things. That's not what Jesus was teaching directly there in in John 8, 1 through 11. If Jesus could rescue and deliver this woman, he can and will also deliver you in the great day of judgment. Jesus confirmed marriage. So hate any defrauding or treachery in your marriage. And there's all kinds and all levels of it. And God despises them all. 
You are guilty of adultery as much or more than her in several obvious respects. If you think about everything that I said last Lord's Day, in the way of mental adultery, in the way of wrong use of divorce courts, in the way of fantasies, romance novels, and all the other ways in which you can be guilty of adultery by not being content with your spouse. You have been warned, go and sin no more. So keep your conscience alive. There is nothing here against capital punishment or judgment in other spheres. The illustration I was able to send you from one of our young men about the Bible college that he went to and that poster with a hand on it with a big stone in it and the the legend of the poster said when Jesus was asked about capital punishment it's the one down 385 before you get to 26 when Jesus was asked about capital punishment he said he that is without sin let him first cast let him cast the first stone no, John 8 doesn't have anything to do about capital punishment that way except legal, the legal process that Moses required for capital punishment to occur. Jesus said, get the capital punishment going, just do it the right way. Mm-hmm. Oh, people have abused this. That's why I'm preaching it again today. I don't want you to let anyone abuse it in your presence. I don't want you to abuse it. And I don't want any of you men neutered, restricted, restrained, convicted, or made guilty where you don't deserve it. If you're guilty of hypocrisy in your thoughts, speech, home, judgment, while you're hiding sins, that's between you and God, and I warn you right now that he will not let you get away with that, but that is not the lesson of John chapter 8. We must be angrier with greater jealousy and zeal against our sins than others. Do everything you can to cultivate, educate, and empower your conscience. It is called the candle of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word, and we thank you for the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his brilliant wisdom on display here in one sentence, taking these scribes and Pharisees who knew the law and pressing the law on them and convicting them by the folly of them trying to put him on the horns of a dilemma. Heavenly Father, do not let this church, do not let any man, woman, or child that has sat here the last two Sundays, including this one, ever err on this passage of Scripture. Let them remember that it is legal proceedings according to the law of Moses that was at stake and what Jesus intended by his two statements, he that is without sin and neither do I condemn thee. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the truth that thou hast shown us. In taking this passage of Scripture and making it legal in nature and limiting the statements of our Lord to their legal implications, we do not excuse ourselves from duplicity and hypocrisy and wickedness when we judge in our offices of authority and are not keeping our own lives perfectly. And we can keep them perfectly through your faithful and just forgiveness through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us remember that it is folly to want to be in a position of authority knowing that masters shall receive the greater condemnation. Let us use our authority wisely, faithfully, kindly for the benefit of those under our care. 
and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Now, Father in heaven, bless the food that's been prepared for us and our conversation around it. Help this church to grow in grace, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and all of his splendid glory. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed, brethren.